One, two. Okay, we're good. Sorry about that. Today we're going to talk about honor family. Everybody say honor family. Thank you. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. Well, let's start in the book of Genesis. Let's start there. Let's go to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, getting into families. When we look to the Scripture, we see that God is the reason for why there are families. Now, the word honor, as we're using it here in this series, is to value and respect. So we should value and respect family. Now, when we look to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and onward, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our own likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over this fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now let's just stop right here and just see how bankrupt the world is without the belief in God. There would be no explanation to any of these things without God. You know that we talk a lot about this here. Don't have much time to get into it. But the goo through the zoo to you understanding of science is make-believe. That is science fiction. It is not true. Even though there are smart people who believe it, it is no more true than when smart people believe the earth was flat. They're just wrong. And the reason why they're remaining in their wrongness or their, in their error is because they do not want to move back to the direction of God being the foundation for these things. And so since they don't have God as an explanation, they think that they can keep explaining things with the method of induction. And induction is different from deduction. Deduction is a way of knowing absolute truth. Induction is a way of coming up with your best guess. So for example, a deductive argument would be something like, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. There's no way around that. That's an absolute truth if those premises are correct. So that, that uh, syllogism, that form of argumentation, is deductive in its nature. Inducti induction is something about best guessing. So it would be something along the lines of, all geese have wings. All geese have wings. This thing in my backyard looks like a geese, therefore it has wings. You know, something like that. But we have no idea of knowing if the next geese is actually going to have wings. We're just guessing based on all of our previous experience with the geeses that we've seen, these geeses have had wings. Now, if someone wants to argue about language, well, you could call something else a geese and be looking at a door. That, that's, that's going down a whole different road. Right now, we're just assuming that communication is sound and that we're using the words to mean something appropriately. So when you're using induction, you're basically saying uh, another thing would be like all swans are what color? White. Or swans are white, rather. It would be swans are white, 
this swan or this thing that looks like a swan is white, therefore it is a swan. So then like what would happen if there would be a black swan? Would that mean that there's no more such things as a swan? Well, now we would have to include the color black into swans. And so the idea of what a swan can be would be expanded. And that's all science is doing is it's taking our best guess and narrowing it down to what we can become functional in the world with. Now, God gave us the order of creation. If you do not have an order in creation, where is the information coming from that is doing what it's doing? So unguided processes are never guided. So unguided evolution is never guided. So it can never have a sense of intelligence to it. Even when people point to a snowflake and they say, well, did God create every individual snowflake? In one sense, yes. God created the information of geometric principles and water principles, those laws. And so when water freezes and falls, it looks like a snowflake because God ordered frozen water to fall like this. So all science really is, is discovering the mind of God. That's all science is ever doing, is discovering the mind of God. So anything that is true in science is true because God made it to be true. And then we could get into a paradigm where it would be like, does God make things true? Therefore, things could be false that look true. Like, could God make two plus two not be four because he made it four? So could God be illogical in a sense? If he can, then truth is arbitrary, they would say. On the other side of that, if they say it's true because in its own value system it's true, 2 plus 2 is 4 all the time, whether God made it that way, then God is subject to the truth. Now, what's the way around that is we say God is true. God by nature, by definition, is true. So he can never be untrue, but he's not subject to a standard called truth he is true. Now, going back to this, when God gave us the world or created the world and then gave it to us as he's doing here, he's giving it to us from his power, authority, information, his wisdom. All we're doing now is stewarding, no different than taking care of the animals. That's, no, that's the same thing when it comes to the deepest things we can discover. So think about it like this. On day one of creation, was the knowledge of a car there? Yes, because God was there. Knowledge of a car is not floating around somewhere. And when uh, Henry Ford discovered, invented, whatever words we use, a car, he pulled out that information from the mind of God and he appropriated it to the earth. And now that information is passed down from mind to mind, from human to human. Dogs are not contemplating the laws of motion and of you know, combustion like a car. They're not contemplating that, but we are. So the question just to reverse it is, where was the information of a car before Henry Ford had it? So we say Henry Ford got it. And now it passes on from mind to mind to mind. But where was it before Henry Ford had it? 
It had to be in the mind of God. Where was the information about cell phone technology and computer technology? In the mind of God. So where, where did family come from? Family came from the mind of God, from the personhood of God. So family is a reflection, earthly family, is a reflection of the family of God. The concept of family, which even animals imitate, is a reflection of God. As we go deeper into this, we would simply say, like the Plato, uh, the Platonists, the people who believe in what Plato said, is that everything in its perfection is in God, and everything else here is a mere reflection of his perfection. So the world of forms, the world where there is a perfect chair, is in God's mind. We have imperfect chairs, reflection of that here. And you can see the same thing is with the tabernacle. The perfect tabernacle was in heaven. Ours was an imperfect uh, representation of that, and so forth and so on. And so all of the sources of wisdom and knowledge are found in God, and from him, if you look at him as the middle gear, or the middle, like a bicycle gear, all the spokes that come from that, that turn, are proceeding from God. And when we look at God making mankind in his image, image is going to be complex. It's going to be image as in multi-purpose, uh, multi-persons in one community. God is multi-persons in one community. It is going to, image is also going to reflect self-conscious, uh, self-determination in the mind. God has his own consciousness and self-determination in the mind. We are like God in that way. Uh, mankind being in God's image is going to include the ability to rule and to have authority as God has power to rule and authority. So a lot of times theologians, they argue over what does image mean, and they come up with all of these things. I say put it all in the suitcase and say that's what it means. There, there's no end really to what image means. Everything we see in God is reflected in us and just start saying things that we see in God. Like I said, we see multi-persons in the community of God. We see self-consciousness. We see self-determination. We see power and authority, rulership in God, and we see that now in us. And you can't have a family without three Three, though I'm not into numerology, but three is the number of perfection, and there's no way around that. There's just no way around having a number that's more perfect than three when it comes to the Bible, because God is three. God creates family by three, male, female, and then children or child, depending on what you want to consider the third. Children, plural, being the third, or one child completing a family, and then a family continuing on from there. That's up for debate. I go back and forth on that. And then we see three as resurrection, three as Jonah, and, and that was purposely put there. But three is perfection in the sense of the, the, the triangle that can fit within the circle, as in geometry goes, is the perfect way of understanding God and his infinite nature and his three persons. And so when God makes family, he makes them based on himself in three. Now, God, you know, people ask us back, could God have been something other than three? And that's a question that I don't think we can answer this side of heaven. Um, 
The early church fathers had a way of understanding the Trinity that, that might make us feel uncomfortable. And it was only because they were wrestling with different questions than generally we do now. We look back at all of their answers and we now apply them to our life. We don't necessarily know why they came up with some of those answers. And so if you go back into their, their worldview, some of the ways they looked at the Trinity was trying to explain how the Son is always proceeding from the Father and how the Holy Spirit is always proceeding from the Father and the Son. And so the way they looked at it was almost like the way we would look at the table that folds in into three part, uh, you know, three pieces. I don't want to say pieces, but has three different sections, and it folds in or it folds out. You know, think of like a telescope. Bloop, bloop, bloop. It comes out one, two, three, and then bloop, bloop, bloop. It comes back in. Does everybody get that? And that would just be a crude way of trying to describe Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So. Son is always proceeding from the Father, but Holy Spirit is always proceeding from the Father and Son. Does everybody get that? So those would be questions that they were asking where generally we're not asking those questions. Generally, what we're seeing is the circle, and within the circle, the triangle relationships as we see the image of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that each having different roles but sharing their, their nature. However you want to see it, you have to understand that at least three needs to be in a family. I've heard married couples talk about being a family, and that's wonderful they're doing that by faith, but it's actually incorrect to say you have a family without a third, and it has to be a child because if you add another wife or another husband, then you don't have a family. So a family, by biblical definition, happens when a child enters the picture. Does everybody get that? Okay. How many got some deep nuggies out of those verses right there? Aren't you glad you go to Bible college? So these are the things that are within my mind. You know, it's so funny. Like there's a philosopher that put up like a post, what the woman thinks about in the shower and what the husband thinks about, you know, if he's a philosopher. So the woman's thinking about, I got to do this. I got to do this with the kids and do this. And I'm thinking like, well, what is the number of perfection? You know, how does three represent the Trinity? How many do you need to have in a family? You know, like all these deep things are just happening while I'm in the shower. And my wife's like, I have to go cook breakfast. I have to go do this. You know, so you might find yourself in those deep, those, deep, um, those deep thoughts. Now that we understand just how significant it is to, to see the family as the image of God, that's why when he determines sexuality, if we change that, we're dishonoring God. We're dishonoring God. Polygamy was a dishonor to God. Sometimes people just want to pipe up right here and go, well, what about polygamy? Polygamy is a dishonor to God, and Jesus was clear about that in the New Testament to reiterate, you've heard from the beginning. He created them male and female. There was only one place in the Bible where polygamy was allowed, and that was if, your, if you had a sibling as a male and your brother died, and your wife, his wife, your sister-in-law, did not have any children. You were to bring her into your family and give her children so that the name of that brother may continue. That's the only time it was commanded. It was never commanded any other ways you saw it. It was not commanded for Abraham to do it with, I uh, do it, you know, uh, you guys are college students. You were very mature with that. I caught myself to have a polygamous relationship with Hagar. That was not God's idea. That was Sarah's idea. 
It was not God's idea for David to take all those different wives. That was not God's command. It was not God's idea for Jacob to be tricked to be given the two sisters instead of one because, remember, he only asked for the one. It wasn't God's idea for uh, Solomon to have all those wives. So it's very clear in the Bible that this is what family looks like. And so when we dishonor family, we dishonor God. And there's many ways we can dishonor family. One of the ways we can dishonor family is through sexuality. You dishonor family when you have sex with yourself because sex was not made for yourself. You dishonor, you dishonor family and God's intention for family when you do sexual things with someone that's not your spouse. So just list them out. Sex with yourself, you dishonor family. Sex with others that are not another person of the opposite sex that's not your spouse, you dishonor family. Sexual things with the same sex, you dishonor family. Sex with multiple partners, you dishonor family, even if they're of the same gender. I think that pretty much does it. Well, the last one, sex, well, two, two ones here. Sex with prepubescent people dishonors family. Sex with people against their will dishonors family. And then the last one, so if you're keeping a list, I would like to have these. Um, sex with non-humans dishonors family including animals and plastic objects or rubber. Are you listening to me? And it's good that we talk about these things here in church and, and describe these things because the world doesn't understand what sexuality is for and they're confused. So how many ultimately did I give? Eight? Who has the complete list? Let's start from the beginning, okay? Okay, sex with yourself, number one. Number two, sex with someone you're not married to. Okay, I'm going to go through them again. Please don't interrupt. That's okay. You're a little bit late to the draw now. But I'm starting again now so I can keep my own thoughts, and you please write them down, Jackie. Number one, sex with yourself dishonors family. Number two, sex with the same sex outside of marriage dishonors family. Number three, sex with the same sex dishonors family. Sex with multiple partners of the same sex, like polygamy or polyandry, dishonors family. Sex with prepubescent children dishonors family. Sex with people against their will dishonors family. And sex with um, objects dishonors family. That's number seven. And the last thing, oh, yeah, which included animals. But did I skip one? Because I thought I had eight before. That's it? Okay. So that is how we dishonor family. Let's not dishonor family. Honor family by honoring your sexuality. When you honor your sexuality, you honor family. Now let's go to the next uh, section here. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. Now notice he doesn't breathe into them, but he forms them as he did Adam, but he doesn't breathe into them. And notice that the translation in English is right, mankind. In college now, they want you to say humanity, but it's more biblically correct to say mankind because Adam means Adam as a person, as a person and as humanity in the Hebrew. It's meant to be for both. So if we had the, um, the Hebrew up here, you would see that humanity, Adam, 
That word mankind is Adam, and then when it talks about the person Adam, it's Adam. It's the same exact word, okay? So he brought them to the man, to Adam, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, uh, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took out of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. He took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, so she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's what it means. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So as we look at this, we see how the woman was made, but it was always in the mind of God to make the woman. So what we, what we do is we don't see a contradiction from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2 because sometimes people try to say, well, it says he's already created mankind and already created all the animals and he already created all the things of the, of the earth, but then starting over in Genesis chapter 2, he goes back to creating things. He goes back to creating some of the, the plants and he goes back to creating the animals and now it shows how woman is made. What is actually happening here? is God is showing in chapter 1 the whole story and how it was done on the days that it was said it was done. But then here in chapter 2, it's giving a more precise look to what those days looked like and then specifically how he made mankind. So no contradiction there. You can study about that later. When we see that he takes woman out of man, do you understand now why the idea of the expanding telescope starts to become relevant. It's an idea here of how we might understand the Trinity. From man comes the woman. Then from man and woman comes what? The children. So you get it? From the Father comes the Son. And from the Father and Son comes what? The Holy Spirit. Now, as I've talked before, and I've done this many times, and I even do it with the cults because... You have cults on both sides who don't understand this. You have the Mormons who go, wee. Well, then that means sexuality is also in God, and we're going to have spirit babies and all of this, and the Father actually had sex with Mary, and that's how Jesus came about. And they just, they just take their sexuality and just run with it and just say family, family. No, family in heaven, family on earth, sex on earth, sex in heaven. And what they're doing wrong is they're, is they're doing the telescope backwards in a sense. They're, they're trying to take the things that are the reflection, the shadows, and trying to put that back onto the light. The shadow is a shadow because it's not the actual thing. The shadow has its own set of identifying principles, and those things do not go back to the original because that would contradict the original. So to give you an example, when you look at my shadow, my, me, me, the person rather, has this skin tone, this color, right? Are you listening to me? I have this color on my hand. But what is the color of my hand on the shadow? It's black. Okay, now if you said, because the shadow is black of color, 
Joe now is back in color. Do you see how you just made a contradiction? What you can say about the shadow, the reflection, which is technically different than a shadow, but just keep following me. What you can say about the shadow is that it has a representation of my image, but not identical to my image. So my hand has five fingers. How many fingers are on the shadow? Five. So those are the things. So when we say that mankind is made in the image of God, mankind is the shadow. Family being procreated via sexuality is the shadow. To now try to point that back to God and say somehow now the Holy Spirit is the mother, which would put her in the wrong place, and it would make, make the folding out example not right because the Son does not proceed from the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from the Son. You get all types of backwards thinking, and it doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit and the Father are not a parent figure, and the Son is now a byproduct of them. That's not what the Scriptures are teaching us. The Scriptures are teaching us that the Father and Son have a relationship that's similar to what we would understand as a father to a son in the sense of being uh, under authority. The son is under the father in, in, in many ways. But that doesn't mean that he had to be born, have a created moment. What the Holy Spirit is, is not in the same sense of dictating into creation and into the, the world, the things the Father and Son does. So even in that sense, the Holy Spirit doesn't have a motherly role in that way. The Holy Spirit actually has a subservient role to the Son because the Holy Spirit only speaks what he hears the Father and Son saying. So there's obvious contradictions there. But what we can, what we can say is that in God... Whatever sexuality is trying, let me start this way, whatever sexuality is reflecting in God is the whole. Does that make sense? Everybody think about this. Whatever, whatever we're doing, my wife and I, whatever we're doing there, whatever you boys and girls will do who are not married and who are married or already doing, whatever we are doing there, that is the shadow of something that is complete in God. That's, that's as far as I can go with it. So whatever we're needing to do this for is completed in God. And the Bible says that after we die, that is now completed in us. And we become like the angels, and we are not married nor given in marriage. So that aspect of our life is no longer done. Now a good question that comes in right here is, if we wouldn't have fallen would we continue to have sexuality? So think of Adam and Eve not sinning. How many children would they have if they lived for eternity and had sexuality as a part of the eternal existence? They would have an infinite amount of children. They would continue on and on and on and on. Now, not taking any more wives, just, you know, Mary, not Mary, but Eve would be perpetually pregnant. You know, just perpetually pregnant for a million, million years. But remember, there was no pain in childbirth. There was no pain in childbirth, so it would not have been painful for her, okay? The question 
does not have a biblical answer that I can point to in the Bible, but only a best guess. Because we don't return to that state of perpetual sexuality in children, my best guess is, is that God would have stopped it after a time, and so the perfect number of whatever he was looking for in the kingdom would have satisfied the need of that. So there would have been seasons, reasons for seasons, seasons have reasons. There would have been a reason for that season, and that season would have had a reason, and eventually sexuality would have been completed. Now, just as a side question, since we're going deep, the other question would be, would Jesus have ever died on the cross? And the answer to that would be no, because there would be no reason for redemption. But would we be able to love Jesus as much as we love Jesus now, having been redeemed because he went to the cross? And I say yes, because the knowledge of good and evil was to be in the knowledge God was going to give us. If you remember... After we eat of the tree, what does God the Father say to God the Son? Man has become like one of us because he now knows good and evil. What is the difference, though, in the story between what it could have been and what it is now is we experience evil instead of hypothetically or however he was going to describe it to us. Now we're actually doing it. We see it. We feel it. And that's where some people say, well, it's so unfair. Why didn't God make evil the equivalent of stubbing your toe? We could still learn our lesson. Why does evil have to come at the price of child molestation, rape, and all of these hideous things? They'll point to you like this example. They'll say, you know, uh, we're taking care of Jordan now, uh, Rudy and Nicole's baby. We love her. She's part of our family. She's like the seventh Wyrostic right now. This helps them out in their time in their, in their in time of their life. It's an honor for us as well. Well, could you imagine anyone coming into my home and defiling all of those children and just doing the most despicable thing to everybody in my house? No, could you imagine me sitting back and just watching and if I had the power to pull out a gun? No, no, we, we would say I would even be guilty in some sense. So they'll then say back to you, how is God so good? And yet he's watching all of this wickedness happen. He sees every bit of it, yet he's not stopping and punching that person or killing that person. And the reason is we chose to know the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what evil really looks like. We would have known what molestation looked like, hypothetically, but we wouldn't have experienced it. We would have known good and evil, but Christ wouldn't have gone to the cross, and I think we still would have loved him as he were. Now, we do know the scriptures say that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, so there is no knowledge that God learns. There's only knowledge that he has, and so God knew what would already take place. And he, remember this, made the choice to pay the highest price for this to play out. And so we kind of get into this discussion of, was it possible for God to create free creatures without having to have them experience evil? and for him to experience the worst evil, he being crucified by his own creation. Because so often we think to ourselves that we have experienced the worst evil, the child being molested, the rape of the innocent person, but we do not understand God suffered the worst evil. 
The worst evil was against him. And sometimes people will mock and say, well, it was just a bad weekend for him. The Holocaust lasted, a, uh, you know, 10 years. That's how they'll mock the crucifixion. It was just a bad weekend for Jesus, you know. No, what they don't understand is that the method of the crucifixion and the, the, the whipping and all of that, which sometimes we can get a little Roman Catholic and kind of idolize a little bit, you know. Like we just want gruesome Jesus all the time. That's why he's always emaciated on the cross. We become almost like, you know, idol worshipers of this event. Don't the, the event is nothing. It's what is transpiring in the event. Yes, by his wounds we are healed and all that, but why? Why does, why does this torture, why does this torment allow the Father to justly now heal and give us all these blessings? It's because God the Son is suffering. God the Son suffering for a millisecond is greater than all of the world's suffering combined. I mean... Just any kind of, him stubbing his toe, any, him being cursed at. And it's not because he's so frail and insecure, it's because he's that holy and that great. You know, sometimes we, we minimize the cross by only looking at the gruesome aspect of it, which it was gruesome, and the Bible says those acts were part of the prophecies that would enable us to be healed. He was pierced, and you know, all of these things, we get it, but we minimize what was actually transpiring in the realm of eternity. What was transpiring was God was putting him in, himself in the place of wicked man, and that seems to have been the only way for a righteous, good God to give us freedom to choose to love him and to have a true relationship with him. And so family represents what God created us for so that we can share in his family. But when we rebelled against him, he came for his own, for his own creation, to redeem them that they might still be a part of his family. That's why if we go to John chapter 1, let's go there quickly. The Bible says that we get to have the honor of adoption. Now remember, that's family language. Because in the fall, we became children of the devil. We became offspring of Satan. We were no longer God's children. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Now, some people try to say, well, we didn't have free will because it says it's not of human decision. No, what they misunderstand there is that it wasn't our decision to make the transaction of adoption based on Jesus' blood. That was his decision. So no one planned this out except for God but yet we get to receive and believe. We don't get to decide how we get to become his children. So it's not because of natural descent, it's not because of a husband's will, and it's not even your own will that you get to be born of God and made a child of God. It's God's will that decides who gets to become a child of God and how that will be done. But you get to decide whether or not you receive that will. Does everybody get that? There's his will to how we'll be children of God. We don't have any part to play in that. But you do get to choose whether or not you'll become a child of God. So just think of it like this. We as SUM could make a, uh, you know, leadership, make a decision of how you're going to go to Mardi Gras. 
We're all going to fly. We're all going to take the train. That's our decision. That's done. Now it's up to you whether or not you receive our decision and go to Mardi Gras our way. Does everybody get that? But we make the decision how we go to Mardi Gras. God makes a decision how people become children of God, how that process is going to work. But you decide whether or not you're going to receive and believe and be a part of that process. So to tie it all together from the book of Genesis with a lot of deep thoughts there, we have to see that we're made in the image of God for a special purpose and that our sexuality is a reflection of God. Remember that both male and female reflect God. Woman only became a weaker vessel after she sinned. Before that, man and woman were equally powerful. So just imagine like Superman and Wonder Woman, you know, like they were equally powerful. There was no weaker in gender. It was after sin that part of the woman's curse was to become a weaker vessel and to have a desire for her husband to rule over her, for the man to rule over her, and that she would have pain in childbirth and that the man would have the curses of of the earth brought upon him, you know, the weeds and all of that. So number one, we see that God created family to reflect his image. There's a family in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, a community. God then makes a family on earth. He gives us all these attributes so that we can rule over the animals, rule over all these creatures. We can name these animals. And I don't think it was just like, that's a dog, that's a cat, whatever. I think when, they were, when, when um, Adam was naming, Adam was, was learning of these animals and understanding them. And we don't know how long it was between that and the fall. Could have been days, weeks, or months. But we have figured out about, uh, you know, the general number of kinds of animals there, there were originally created. We have a rough estimate of how many there were they could fit on the ark. You know, you don't need a thousand dogs, just a dog kind. And over time, they'll multiply and make different kinds of dogs. Just like all of us have come from Adam and Eve, different kinds of humans, but one humankind, you know, different representations of the humankind is probably a better way of saying it. One kind of human, variations of humans, multiple variations. And so he makes us in the image, he gives us family, he gives us authority, and then we sin and we ruin it. And now where does most people's greatest pain come from? The family or lack thereof. Because someone didn't honor family, you grew up without a mom or a dad in the home. Because someone didn't honor family, you were hurt by another person, molested, abused. Because someone didn't honor family, you got a magazine, a porno magazine or whatever, and you got in, 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 you know, in your mind all of these wicked things. Because someone didn't honor family, that was brought upon you. And then now you, you might have been not just a victim, but you might have also been a perpetrator. Because you didn't honor family, you did things you shouldn't have done with others. Because you didn't honor family, you gave money to the, you know, the X-rated community. Because you didn't honor family, you violated yourself and others. And, and I can put myself in that same boat. And now we're all guilty of breaking the laws of family. But we need to go back and restore those laws and to honor family. And it's so basic but it's good to remind ourselves. Let's go to the notes. Let's go to Ephesians. I won't spend a lot of time here. 
Uh, but that's what I normally say before I spend a lot of time someplace because you never know what's going to come out. I thought I was just going to breeze right through Genesis and then breeze through this and then give you guys time to give me Q&A about my family. If I even get to read all the scriptures, that will be a blessing, right? But we'll see. Maybe we'll um, still have time for that. Okay. Ephesians 5.21. Let me just summarize it because I know you guys have read this passage before, not to dishonor the word at any time, but just to summarize it. We know that mutual submittance is commanded. We know that husbands, or rather wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives, and together they represent the church. Children then are to obey their parents. Fathers are not to exasperate their children. And children are, like I said, to obey their parents. So just to keep it, keep it simple, because I do think it would be good for me to have some Q&A with you guys. You know, not just make it theological, but make it practical, okay? Husband, wife, mutually submitting, mutually submitting, but then the wife giving her ultimate submittance to the husband in the direction of the family. This doesn't excuse abuse or any kind of, uh, you know, that kind of thing. This is just saying that they're both submitting to each other, both living out their, walking out their salvation with fear and trembling. But then the wife says, All, my, my vote, I always will submit to the husband for the final word, but I want my vote to be heard. I want to be appreciated. And when I'm right, I want my husband to submit to that which God is giving me for the family as well because there is mutual submittance. But ultimately, the wife says, I trust God to speak to my husband. And then the child or children submit to mom and dad. They submit to mom and dad, and they grow up, and they honor their family, and then they keep on that same tradition. And the Bible talks about uh, children who don't honor their parents are going to suffer, and those who do honor their parents are going to be blessed. It's the first commandment with the promise, the Bible says. And so even if you have non-Christian family, as long as what they are telling you is not to harm you but for good, you should submit to it. But Christ does say when it comes to your spirituality that if they try to get in the way, you have to hate your mother, brother, father, all of this. Even Christians need to do that if someone tries to get in their way of their spirituality. I need to hate what my wife would do to me if I allowed her to to get in the way of me and God. I need to hate what my children would do to me if they got in the way between me and God. So uh, honor your family, even as an adult. But remember when you leave and cleave, now you become the start of your new family. You become the authority of the new family you're starting, rather. And that's where the authority is. So parents don't have permission to interject themselves back into the life of an adult family a member and, and now have their way. They can have an adult relationship with their family, just like I do with other brothers and other sisters. My mom and dad can have that relationship in my life. Uh, but when it comes to honoring and respecting them as the people who provided for me and that I should take care of them, all of that still applies. It's just they can't tell me now when to go to bed. They can't tell me what to eat for lunch. They can speak to me as they would appear because I have leaved and cleaved, and I am now my own authority under God, and that is now how I'm going to go forward, and my wife is under me, the family, and all of that. But I still honor them in, in the way that I should, as in honoring what they have done for me, providing for me, caring for me, and I should do that for them. Let's scroll down a little bit. I'm going to get to a new passage here in Matthew. The passage is right below that, my brother. Thank you. Matthew chapter 19 talks about eunuchs. 
Now, this is always good to bring up because he talks about them being, there being people born this way, and it comes up also in the context of divorce, which is a part of uh, dishonoring family. Jesus replied in Matthew 19, 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs that have been made eunuchs by others. That would hurt. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. And this is similar now to Paul's discussion about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 40. When Paul talks about it being better to marry, he's coming from the same opinion that the disciples had. If it's going to be so hard that we're going to have to stick together for the rest of our life and possibly, if it goes wrong, get a divorce and then be cursed, why even go through all of that trouble? His point, Paul's also goes into persecution. If we're all dying and we're watching our families be ripped apart by lions and our children, why should we even go into the marriage covenant right now? Let's prepare to meet Jesus. But Jesus is clear, and so is Paul, that it's not a command of God to do that. It's only for those who feel a calling to do that. It's only for those who feel a calling to do that. And so the word eunuch there can mean someone who abstains from sex or someone who has their sexual organs messed with. And that's why it's saying there that some are born this way. And there's a play here on um, could you be born a hermaphrodite? Could you be born a, a whatever, uh, you know, I don't think there's another way of saying hermaphrodite, but yeah, could you be born that way? Yes. And so people have tried to say that's what a eunuch is here. It's a hermaphrodite. That's not, that's not what it's saying. Or people have tried to use this as, could you be born homosexual, which we know is not true, but they may try to put that here. That is, and, and even if you were, you were to abstain from having sex. So that would go even against their point. But if you ever see people use this scripture, I'm trying to remember how they've done it, either for hermaphrodites or homosexuals. We know it's untrue. But we do know it's true you can be born a hermaphrodite. So possibly he could be referring to if you're born a hermaphrodite, then you know you really can't reproduce. Your organs might not enable you to. But I don't even think that's in question here. What I literally believe is in question here is you are born that way. For there are eunuchs who are born that way. Then there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And then there are those who choose to live like eunuchs. Okay, so here's the way I look at it. Those that are born that way are those who would fall under the category of just being asexual. They don't have a big sex drive. It's not a big deal to them. I remember talking to one of my professors. She said, I just never really felt like getting married. It just wasn't on my mind. I just kept serving Jesus, and that's just the way it was. She didn't burn on the inside to have sex. So she was born that way in the sense of there was not really a resisting of a urge to have sex. Number two would be your force not to have sex, either with the men, them messing with you, or the ladies 
just saying you can't. We forbid you, like some of the women that had to serve the princesses, like you're going to remain a virgin the rest of your life. You can't. Or the men who had to serve also with the women's harems, you can't have sex either, okay? The third one is you desire to have sex. You have a natural sex drive that you've been born with. It does seem, you know, fun, like something you want to do. This could be enjoyable for you, yet you feel a calling of the Lord not to do that. And you may feel that calling for a time not to do, not to date, you know, or not to do that. And so that could be a time or it could be for a lifetime. But only those who, should, who can accept this should accept this. So even if you were born asexual and you go, man, I don't really have a sex drive, but I kind of desire to want to have a sex drive. I would like to do that. It would be good for you to seek out medical help, see if there's some things going on with your hormones, and do that. So you don't have to just say, that's just the way I am now. You could actually seek it out. The only ones who should stay eunuchs are the ones that God has called to do so, and they sense that calling. No one else should interfere with you. Now, we read uh, yesterday a little bit about in the end times, Paul says that they will forbid to marry, abstain from certain foods. We know that that can refer to what the Roman Catholics did, trying to add more rules to the Bible, and how has that worked for their priesthood? And now we even hear the stories about the nuns. It doesn't work. When you, when you say to serve God, you have to do this unbiblical thing, you're just asking for trouble. And it's gone back and forth on whether or not celibacy has promoted, you know, their, um, their pedophilia. Some studies say yes, some studies say no. So you got to be careful when you use that as an argument. But I would say it hasn't helped. It is, it, it is not a good thing, and it's not going to have good results. Even if the majority of them don't become pedophiles, and it's not like a majority of people who are abstinent become pedophiles, even if that's not a, like a... Thing we find inductively, we can just definitely say, like, telling a grown man and grown men and women not to have sex, that's not a good thing. That's not good for them unless they've been called to do that. Now, they may try to get around it and go, well, all the priests say they have been called to do that. That's not true. They've actually interviewed the priests, and the study that I looked at, 80% of them said, we wish we can marry. <laughs> so we feel called to serve God, and if this is what we have to give up, that's a big sacrifice for us, but we do wish we could have both serve God and marry. So that's something to think about. And then we got the discussion there on divorce. Didn't want to get hung up on that too much today. I have talked about it before in my Hot Topic series. Uh, Jesus lists the one here of adultery. Paul lists uh, probably one, if not two, and that is if the unbeliever leaves, let them go. And in that leaving, in that leaving, I believe abuse is there as well, giving us the third reason. Because in the leaving, if it's hindering her from serving God with physical abuse, that to me would emphasize the separation. Now, it may, just, it may be a subpart of the separation because he neglects her. It could just be two reasons, adultery and neglect, okay? And a subpart of neglect is abuse. That would be a real simple way to see it. 
But abuse could be a third thing because the abuse starts to violate her in other ways that the Bible says that you can't, uh, you can't do. So even though it doesn't attach divorce to it, but, you know, it doesn't say what happens if he tries to murder you either, you know. So I, I, I think that if you want to just keep it, like, straight, like, read the Bible and, like, not try to make implications from other places. Just say there's two. But under neglect, definitely abuse is in there. But I think, like, how the Bible says, like, um, oh, man, it just slipped my mind. But... In other places where, where Paul talks about slaves obeying your masters, you know, you have a master in heaven and all of that, that uh, if, if women were to be abused and all of that, I don't think Paul would have stood for it. I don't think that was something he would have allowed. And I'm, so I, I make that abuse clause, you know, come through the other teachings of the Bible. But the, the clear one is neglect, and neglect would include abuse. So that's divorce. Let's go down here and look at this picture right here. In conclusion to my summary, let's look at this. Or in conclusion with the summary, here's how I see it. Now, you might have seen something like this because I've seen it floating around online, but it didn't have the church there. And this is the part that I don't understand because if God is over the husband and the wife and the children and there's no church, then what is the purpose of him bringing up Paul, bringing up the church in the situation of marriage? Why does he do that? Because the church supersedes the family. Now, this does not mean that the husband should be uh, always at the church or the wife should be always at the church in the sense of doing work for the Lord where they neglect their family. But what we have to see is the best husbands, the best wives, the best children are going to be those in the church doing the things of God. I don't just want to raise my children home alone by myself. I want you to raise my children with me. So they say it takes a village to raise a family. Well, what village are you talking about? What village are you talking about? Because I want to know that village. If it's not this village, I don't want them raising my children. If it's this village, of course, you know, of course, let's, let's raise our families together. Let's encourage the husbands to be better husbands, men with men, women with women. You get it. And it's so important, but yet we don't like that because uh, this culture, we do it at this church, but you know what I mean, the we there. This culture doesn't like that because they want to have their church hurt, and they want to act like they don't really need the church. And as long as them and their wife stick together and all of this, you know, it's okay. And that's not true. You belong in the church. And the church is not a building, obviously. It's the, the organi organism of the body of Christ. It's the living, breathing body of Christ that forms together with the different gifts, with elders and deacons leading, and that church forms the pillar and foundation of truth. That pillar forms the living tabernacle of God. Though you are individually a temple of God, collectively, the Bible says in Peter, we're stacked on top of each other to make the universal, complete uh, tabernacle, the, the house of God. And, and that is how we should see honoring family. So from the very beginning till now, God wants us to honor family. And how does it end? It ends with the collective church being married to Jesus and dwelling with her husband, her lover for eternity. That's how it ends. That's the story of the Bible. It's all about family from beginning to end. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding, and the last miracle or all of that that culminates is the, mar the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, it, it's, it starts with God creating family, and it ends with Him being our Father and our God and us being His children. 
Every way you look at it, family is the key to understanding the history of God and what he's doing among us. We are his children. We serve a purpose. He wanted us to be in his kingdom and to share life together. And it's odd to think about uh, what it will be like in comparison to how we see family. Like, you know, the marriage supper of the lamb, is it going to look like the Brady Bunch? Is it going to look like this big spread out table? Um, how, is it going to look like we're the Oltons or whatever, you know, John Boy? What was that show way back in our generation? Uh, Good night, John Boy. This is so, this is like, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Google, good night, John Boy, and we'll find out what show that was. That was even not in my generation. I had to watch the reruns growing up, you know, because like, leave it to Beaver, that stuff's old, you know, and it's like Brady Bunch, that stuff's old. Man, that's like my dad's generation. Good night, John Boy, from what TV show? From what TV show? Good night, John Boy. So I don't know. I mean, it, it feels odd to us now to think about it because every time people try to create this environment of heaven on earth without the kingdom of God putting these things in place, it turns into a cult, you know? It turns into people swapping wives and all of these things, and, and everybody's like, but we're supposed to put the kingdom on earth. What are you talking about? Go ahead. What is it? The Waltons. Thank you. The Waltons. What part of the kingdom are we supposed to put upon the earth right now? Our families and the gospel. I am not supposed to try to find a way for all of us to live on the communes right now, plant the 12 uh, trees that line the river in the new kingdom. And, do, you know, I'm not supposed to try to do all of that, but people are trying to do that. And they're weirdies, and they get, they get all inward, and then they become cultish, you know. And I lived by the Amish. And the Amish are about as close to a cult as you can get and still be orthodox. But, you know, they have a lot of problems in their community, a lot of things they keep secret, a lot of issues. And if you talk to people who know the Amish, that's true. They're very, very nice people, but they have a high rate of alcoholism, a high rate of abuse within marriage and within children, between the older ones and the younger ones, the siblings and stuff. It's a nasty, nasty system that has been developed in their secret society there. But they're not a cult because they basically hold to all the definitions of the Christian faith. I mean, all of the doctrines of the Christian faith, the way we would define them. But it's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go into the world and make spiritual children and be fruitful in our families and join together in the church and raise up disciples. I mean, Jesus was really clear. If you wanted us to do other things, he would have told us to do other things. Some people point to the buying and selling of homes, and they're like, okay, that meant they were living together. No, it doesn't. It just means Barnabas was rich. It just means Barnabas had a bunch of money. He had a bunch of homes. He sold some of the homes he had, and he gave it, the money to the church. That doesn't mean everybody was living in Barnabas' Barnabas's home. Do you get what I'm saying? It doesn't mean everybody was staying there. And this idea they met together and did all of that, that's because they lived by each other in a community that without, without would be easy. It's easy for me and Des and Vinny and all of everybody there, the kids and all of that, for, for us and them to hang out. That's easy for us to do that because we're neighbors. That might be easy for a few of you guys to do that, but it's not easy for you and I to do that. You know, we live in totally different parts of the, you know, the Chicagoland area, so we don't have to get in our mind that, like, they met together daily and this, this, and this, that that's what's going on, uh, that that would be what's going on here. Not at all. You know, even uh, a lot of the third world churches, as they grow and expand, they make all of these great kind of like 
ways of their culture. They think it's going to happen in America. No, never one of them, not one of them have ever managed to do it here. Not the G12 guys, not the African guys, none of them. Because the moment they come to the West and they say, we're going to the church six days a week and doing all this, that only lasts so long. Their, their kids eventually get in sports and they're doing this. And it's always funny meeting the African missionary, the whatever, you know, the guy from Africa or the person from Latin America. It just doesn't work. It's, it's not feasible for the culture that we live in. You can try to make it work, and there's nothing wrong with having to pray your, your church open for 24-hour prayer or 6 in the morning prayer. I totally agree with that. But if you and I are thinking we are going to start a church, Lawrence, where every member is going to come to that church and meet with us at 6 in the morning like the New Testament church met together and prayed every day, you will either have in every church of four people that do that or you're going to have a church of just a rotating group that does it. And you might say, well, come once a week. And that's fine. And you can come up with ways to do it. But the moment you leave the every, you lost the every. So that's why I always say when it comes to, like, women in ministry and this and that, if you don't want your women wearing head doilies, not talking in church, and all of these other things, you can't take it for, for us today. You have to put it in the culture of what, where it was at. Because they'll say, well, we'll let our women do announcements, and they don't have to wear doilies on their head, and they don't have to ask their questions at home to their husbands. Okay, well, the moment you change all of that, and they can wear jewel, they can wear pearls and all this, but they just can't be pre preachers. No, no, you just took one thing out of the six Paul said they couldn't do. So it's all or nothing to me. I'm an all or nothing kind of person. And so when it comes to the Bible where it's clearly speaking about cultural normities, it's just all or nothing. It's, it's either all commanded or it's not commanded. And I don't see it as being commanded, so I take it as being a cultural description of what's going on in that day. Because if you look at the book of Acts, it says, men and women shall prophesy. That was the role of authority we saw a little bit with Deborah in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, as much authority as they can give them, the women, he keeps giving them. And the only time he's restricting it is when there's problems with them. But that doesn't mean that's an every and all statement forever. Otherwise, once again, like I said, you're going to have to live a very strict life with the women in the church. And I just don't see that being a part of the plan of, uh, of, of Acts. The, the part of the plan of Acts is to get men and women out in the kingdom of God doing these things equally. Okay? So I love you guys. We'll end with questions. But your class is starting at what time? 1.15. Okay, so if you guys want to talk to me about our family the Wyrostic family, and you got Lauren's family, the Sciensky family, we can talk about family. So, and you can talk about anything about the, the thing that I just brought up, too, you know. Let me just start off with the, the most awkward one. I'll get to Jackie next. This will only take me a minute. One of the reasons why I did not have sex with myself from the fall break of SUM to the day I got married at 28, that's about 10 years and that so many people struggle with that is I believe it was a heart issue. I loved God more than I loved sin. I love God more than I love sin. Sometimes people try to act like I am that born eunuch. Maybe I don't have a sex drive. Now you look at my six kids and you're like, nope, no, I was just fine. I'm just fine. Trust me. You can ask my wife. We'll talk more about that maybe with married couples about how often, you know, married couples have sex on, on average. But I can just say two, three times a week, no problem for our family, okay? We don't have to get into all the details. But in my house, it's, it's almost an everyday thing or an every other day thing. That's not a problem. And I'm a fruitful vine in the vineyard of God. So is my wife. But 10 years, it wasn't time for that. And it was a heart issue. And I gave Jesus my heart. And the things of God, I think, are simple when you make it heart issues. 
Those who always want to know the tricks and this, this, and that. There was no tricks for me. There was no accountability partner. There was no, uh, there was no internet blocking services because I haven't looked at pornography in that whole time. Uh, there was none of that. It was simply a heart issue. It was, is this what I want? Do I want Jesus or do I want that? Like I want Jesus more than that. Settled problem. And the same thing with, with smoking. Settled issue. And you guys have been set free from those things, so I pray God sets you free from that. And then if you're dealing with that and, and stay free, and that's why we don't graduate you into the, from the 201 unless you are. And then the other thing with, um, you know, now being a married man and tempted towards adultery. This is the way I see it, and it's as simple as this. If I want to commit adultery, I am saying I don't honor God's sexuality. Do I want a life where I don't honor God's sexuality? No. So it doesn't matter how I feel with, with temptation and stuff. I mean, there are times, I don't know if it's hormones, pheromones, or whatever, but I can feel physical attraction when I meet people. I can feel it, and I'm not going to make you feel weird and have physical attraction towards you, and hopefully that doesn't happen. But uh, you can feel when people are attracted to you. Generally, it's with non-Christians. Generally, it's when I'm hanging out doing something and a woman approaches me or I'm out somewhere or maybe I'm witnessing and my wife's not around. I understand there's things I can do at that moment. It's not, it's not hard. I understand. But that physical attraction is not what I want. I want Jesus, and I want what's best for my life. And so one of the ways I just played it through in my mind was just real simple. Okay, let's say I'm witnessing. This girl's a little tipsy, and she's coming on to me as we're talking, flirting, touching. Because I've had sex with girls I've just met like that. So I understand how it goes from you're touching my hand to we're now having sex in my backyard. Okay, so I've done naughty, nasty things. That's why I was at the clinic a couple times. Okay, so I understand... I understand how it goes there. So it's so in my mind, either I'm missing the signal and you know whatever. But here's the thing. Let's say I do that. Okay, what happens now? I wake up the next morning or in the hotel. What what happens now? I go home, and I've I've had sex with another woman. It was that worth it? Okay. Now let's say I suffer the consequence. I'm no longer a pastor because that's what my occupation is. It's related to how I live sexually, and now I I do something else for a living. Now I just drive Uber. I do something else. Right? Okay. Am I going to be in a relationship with that woman? I don't even know that woman. I don't even know if we get along. I don't even know if we like each other. You understand what I'm saying? I've had, I have a past. Some of you all don't have a past. Don't get one, okay? But I had sex with people that the next couple of days I found out, I don't even like you. I don't even like, now that I'm not drunk, we're not high, we're not having sex, I don't even like being around you in that way, okay? Now let's say for some reason, oh, she's just so much better than my wife. She's the one that I should have married. I, I buy into this garbage that my friends buy into. How long do you think it's going to take for the devil to throw me that bait again? Two or three years down the road, now I'm getting my shoes. I'm telling this one girl at the mall, I felt like she was so hitting on me this one time. A good-looking young lady, I just felt like she was hitting on me, you know. And I know that girls can be nasty too. They don't even care if you're married, you know. So she was hitting on me. So just imagine, just imagine, let's put ourselves in this scenario. This girl's hitting on me while I'm getting my Skechers. Why it's never going to let me go to Skechers again now, right? (laughs) Let's say the girl is sitting on me while I'm at Skechers. She's sitting on me. I, I say, man, man, we could be good together. Can I get your number? Let me, let me give you a call. Let us hook up. She gives me the number. We play this out. She's the one that I always wanted now, right? So I divorce my wife, lost ministry. I'm driving Uber, Uber and now I'm living with this, this girl, right? I'm living with her. Now, two years later, instead of being at Skechers, I'm at the buckle, and now the girl at the buckle is flirting with me. What do I do now? Yep, I'm probably going to do the same thing. You know what? The girl from Skechers, she doesn't meet my need like this girl meets my needs. Now I want this girl. 
but I don't want to tell the one from the, the uh, sketchers. I'm going to do it for a little bit till I get caught, then get a divorce, move on. You see how that goes? And then what do people do now? They just say, well, forget the marriage thing. Forget the commitment. We're just dogs. We're just animals. It's natural to have sex anyways. Just throw all that off and just become open in your relationship. And then 10 years from now, I don't know what love is. I'm broken in my spirit because I have all of these broken relationships. And now I don't have a great relationship with my kids because I don't get to be with them. I've lost my ministry. Uber sucks. You know, living life as an Uber driver is not what I was made to do. Ubering is great. Don't let me make you guys feel bad who do it. I do it still. But you get what I'm saying. Like, that doesn't satisfy me in any way. And what happens now? I'm depressed. I'm 50 years old, 55 years old, you know, and it's, it's over. I've wasted that part of my life, man. That's how I look at it. So just rewind it. Like I've told a lot of you guys in sermons, man, what some of you guys are fantasizing about is my worst nightmare. I have nightmares like that and wake up in cold sweats going, dear God, no, may I never do that, you know. But what would I rather have? I would rather have Jesus. And what do I now think towards that girl that's hitting on me or whatever? What do I think to myself? She has no idea what she's asking for. She doesn't know any better. She thinks because we're, we're our, for, our, our, our pheromones are going back and forth that that's really what she wants. That's not what she wants. Trust me, you don't want that, you know. But you feel it, you know. You feel, you feel attraction at times. You do. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know if it's just because at that time, maybe I'm in lust and I made it all up in my head. I don't know, but I feel it. I feel it. What do I do? I just do exactly what I told you. I, do. I choose Jesus over that. Maybe a last one, and I'll get the Jackie here just to kind of open it up for the questions you were afraid to ask. How do you not have sex with yourself? How do you not cheat on your wife? So I, asked, I answered those two. And then here's, here's maybe the last one. How do you have a happy marriage? So many people have strong personalities. They come into marriage with immaturity. They don't know how to handle themselves. They blow the whole thing up. There's only one reason why I've had a happy marriage all these years and I've had such a strong personality. It's because I feared God. I feared God. That means if I was right but my wife felt wrong, I'm not doing right well. Does everybody get that? If being wrong, I, if being right, I make my wife feel wrong, it's not that I sh shouldn't be right. It's just I'm not doing right well. I'm not being right well. I'm not handling my rightness well. But, of course, I'm not right all the time either. So I began to say to myself, why am I so defensive in these areas when God's using my wife just like he would use my mentors, like Brother Anthony, or God would use you and Nancy's life. We're just peers to each other. Why would I not receive from her? Why would she not receive from me? So I started uh, saying to Nancy, let's not look at it like who's right or wrong, who wins the argument, whatever. You know, we tease each other like that. But, but in the real moments of, of growing and all of that, why not just look at it like two best friends are sharpening each other's iron, you know? And I, I do believe, my wife will always tell you that, that, that submitting to the man simplifies the arguments. And so I would, I would suggest that to you as well. But I do always say that the man really listening to his wife has a lot to do with it. Because I don't just make the rules all the time. I listen to my wife. But it really does, her point does stand because it really does simplify things. Like if we're arguing over the toilet paper and the scripture says, wife, submit to your husband in all things, you know, then I'll say, how many things? And then she says all things, and I'll go, bloop, you know. And then she has a choice whether, I know, it's so hard, Jackie. It's going to be so hard. 
It's going to be so hard. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If your husband actually hangs out with Jesus every day, as I do, and I believe Lawrence does, the Lord will convict us if that's how arbitrary, arbitrary we are over those things. And so now, actually, I started off a lot with the, you know, stomping my feet. I'm the man of the house. That's a lot of speaking to myself. If you have to tell your wife you're the man of the house, stomping your feet, chances are you're not anymore, you know. Uh, but you still should be treated as one, but you're not acting as one. That's a good distinction. Even if your husband's not quite acting right, we still women still submit to them because you'll make them a better man that way. You won't make them a better man rebuking and getting all up in their face. If, if, it's, if it's a rebuke, it ought to be a thing over sin, not over the toilet paper, okay? So let me say that. But, but I'm telling you, at the early part of the marriage, it was all things, all things, all things. And now I'm probably more of your typical husband where it's like, honey, you can have your way. Okay, you do it your way. You do it your way. And then that's, that's resigning to her a lot of those little things because I feel like she already respects and honor me, honors me in so many ways. Why should I make these issues? Why should I make that an issue? Well, you know, you have disagreements, and it's your best friend. It's your buddy. So we have disagreements all the time, you know, and it could just be like as, as simple as who's in charge of the kitchen when it's time to cook a meal that we both want to cook. And that's a crazy situation. I know it sounds simple, like it's easy to settle, but it's not so easy in our house. Maybe you can relate. I have to say to my wife, now, you stay over there. I'll stay over here. and Don't cut that. Don't turn on. You know, because I, I have a way of doing this. Now, it's easy if I'm just there or she's just there. But if we're both going to cook together, which we love to do, and those of you who have been to our house, you've seen the Middle Island. Those are so cool. I know a lot of departments that even have those and everything. It's just fun to cook together. you gotta, you got to just give each other space and love each other. So to summarize, it's all in heart issue for yourself, for staying pure and holy, and for marriage. It's a heart issue. I, I believe the Lord gave me a word right at the beginning that changed everything for me. When you guys are in arguments and disagreements, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. As long as you both love each other and move past from it better, you can, you can make it. And so I started to say I was wrong more. She would start to say she was wrong more because I was thinking before, like, people are keeping tallies. We're on a reality show, and if I admit I'm wrong, I'm going to look so dumb. You know, I'm so proud. I can't admit I'm wrong. And then I began to realize, like, nobody cares. No one on the outside cares how we do this and that and this and that. Why, why do I care so much? It's okay if I'm wrong. Okay, I'm wrong. Let's go on, you know. All right, Jackie, what's your question? That's a good question. How much family time? I'm saying it for those on, on the online. How much family time? And then what else? What is considered family time? So how much family time do we give and what is considered family time? We try to have set days for family fun days, so that's one day a week where the family gets to decide what we do. We go out, we have fun, we do all those kinds of acti activities that would be considered like, you know, like what anybody else would do, movies, bowling, you know, those kinds of things. Then every day, I always give them good morning kisses and tell them I love them in the morning and at night and pray for them. And then most days on a good week, most days on a good week, we try to do some kind of family devotion, but it doesn't always, it's not always a good week. Uh, but on average, maybe if I looked at a month, I'm trying to look at last month, maybe, um, well, we traveled last month, so we were together a lot, but I don't know. If you talk about 30 days in the month, 
maybe 10. And the reason why the other days are not happening as devotions is because I'm not either home in the evenings or something like that, you know. So maybe one out of three is a devotional day or has something to do with that. So you have uh, family fun days, prayer in the morning and night. You have one out of three days, some type of an official devotional. And then every day that I am home in the evening, which is pretty much other than Monday or Friday, unless it's a Thursday life group, so that would be two, uh, five out of seven or four out of seven, we end the night together for an hour or two. And then the question, like, what constitutes family time? Being with your family. Uh, you know, focusing in on them, taking them places, doing things with them. But this is a real tough thing for a lot of families today. So I never try to meddle or make my family the, uh, the way everybody has to do it because I, I work from home and my wife works from home. So that's not fair to try to do that. You know, Lauren uh, works from home as well, and she'll kind of visit us, and she'll see the world that we're in, you know. Like she may come in the middle of the afternoon, and I'll be outside with my kids doing something. I mean, but who gets to do that, you know. Like, like now in the summer, almost every one of my lunches will be with my kids outside at a picnic table or something, you know. So, But that doesn't mean I don't do devotional time with them. I'll still try to have that set devotional time. And devotional time for us has changed as the kids have gotten older. Before, it was just telling them little Bible stories, maybe singing a song or two and praying. Now it's having them memorize Scripture, going over JBQ Scriptures that they have, or doing Bible quizzes during that time, letting them choose the songs that they want to sing, having them pray. Now even my older ones reading the devotions that I write, that's really fun to watch them do that, answering the questions. But we still have the real little ones with us too, you know, so I try to make sure that I don't always... Expect the little ones to keep up with the old ones because if, if all I had was Joy and Titus, we would just be hanging out. So sometimes I feel bad for them. They have to sit down the whole time. But, I, you know, as a parent, you kind of learn them. You, like, you know their structure and, like, what they can handle, you know. Any questions for Lauren as a, well, let's, let's go to you. Maybe you guys can ask your questions to Lauren later because there's only maybe a few minutes. Go ahead. Yes, okay. How do we discipline Great question. That's a great question. How, when is discipline done? Okay. So for us, we start timeouts as early as like one years old. So if they're crying, not listening, we're shushing, they're not listening, we put them in a timeout like their crib, and then we come back to them and have communication with them. Um, we make sure they always have water and all of that, and we'll attend to them. But it's, it's not like just throwing them off there, not, you know, forgetting about them, not coming to see them. It's like it's a discipline. So it's actually coming to back in and checking in on them. So I'll be like, Titus, you have to stop crying. Do you want me to come get you? And you'll even see it with the little one. Now, every child is different. So you can't expect a child to do what another one does unless they're on that level. They have to get to that level. So I know when Titus is on this level and the kids are on this level, so I'll put out my hands and be like, do you want to come? And if he's like, no, and if he throws himself down in the crib, then I walk back out. Okay, so it starts with that. Then around two years old, they'll get to Dawes. We'll do the Dawes on the hand. Not like some like full slap down. We'll just be like the Dawes, like slapping of the hand. If we notice we're doing it too much and they start doing it to the other children, we'll pull back because it's lost its meaning. They're confused and they don't know what's going on. But if it's like something when we do, they get a little like irritated or cry over and they, they know what's going on. Like I can see like that makes them want to stop. Then, then that's what we go with. 
Also around that age, I'll hold them somewhat tightly if they want to do stuff that I don't want them to do. So at the devotional table, if Titus, uh, right around one and a half this age, if he doesn't want to leave, I'll start holding him now. And uh, only a few times has he had a full-on fit, but then after that, he subsides. So we, we, uh, we call that kind of like breaking in, but probably is not a nice word. We should probably call that something else. Uh, discipline, I don't know, but I'll just hold him. And I've even studied from parenting guys, they talk about doing that. Not to the point where it hurts or leaves marks or I bruise them, but it's just I'm holding them tightly to help them realize that you're not going to get your way, you're going to sit here. And then right around three years old, they'll get, uh, the timeouts continue. Timeouts will continue into different corners and different things, coming back, saying why they got a timeout. Kisses afterwards, we forgive you. Then right around the three, we'll start doing like the soft spank on the butt with the hand, increasing that to a paddle, increasing that to a paddle. Uh, and our, pa uh, our paddle's a wooden spoon, so, you know, my mom broke a wooden spoon on me at an early age, so you'll break it before you'll really hurt them, but you could still obviously hurt them pretty bad if you wanted to, but we just, I do it to the point where the mark doesn't remain more than a few moments, you know, maybe five, ten minutes, so I check their butts, and then I look at them, and I go, man, maybe that lasted a little bit too long, and I shouldn't have did that, and I try to learn, like, where is that, where is that space, and, um, we don't spank on the bare butt and all of that because of that reason. And then after 10, after 10, we don't spank anymore. We just do the other kind of discipline because I don't think spanking after that point helps. So if you think about yourself being after 10 being spanked, it probably didn't help. It didn't help me. You know, I look at examples of that. Because then what are you going to have to do? You're going to bring out like a belt, a whip, a, you know, just whip them, you know. I mean, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. So once you've gone beyond like, I don't know, like I said, eight, nine years old, you're not really going to hurt them like uh, a spanking. I don't want to say hurt like actual physical hurt. You're not going to get them to regret their decision based on that amount of pain. Like there's, there's not a level of pain you can bring an eight, nine, ten-year-old that's going to be the equivalent of what a three, four, five-year-old feels with those little swats. I just think it teaches them the fear of God, the fear of discipline. I don't want them to be criminals. I don't want them to be people in life that are, that are arrested. So I want them to feel that punishment has to do with pain. But pain itself is not why we do it. We do it not just to be punitive, but to be restorative. I just want them to know, like touching the hot fire, it hurts. Don't do it. You know what I'm saying? And obviously, um, we don't take pleasure in doing that. And some days, you're not so disciplined you don't spank when, you sp when you're supposed to. We only spank in the bathroom or in the room, but sometimes you spank in public. You spank in the van. You spank somewhere you're not supposed to, and you feel bad. You're like, man, I just got, I got angry, and I just wanted to spank them right now. But that's why one of the reasons why I got noise-canceling headphones so that I can endure the crying for a little bit to be disciplined in how and when to spank. Does that help? I have to let you guys go. Let's stand in prayer. Father, we thank you for today. Help us to love the way you love, help us to honor family and to have blessed families. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen.